This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu. It's a great pleasure and an honor to introduce Professor David Lieberman as the 16th annual uh, Bliss Carnican Lecturer here at the Humanities Center. Uh, David is the Jefferson E. Pizer Professor of Law at the University of California, Berkeley, which he joined shortly after completing his education at London and Cambridge Universities. He's been the recipient of many more prestigious awards and fellowships than I can possibly enumerate here. Uh, these include, among others, a fellowship at Stanford's Center for Advanced Study in Behavioral Sciences, uh, a Mellon Foundation sabbatical award, and research fellowships from the London University and the American Bar Foundation. In addition, he served at a, as a visiting professor at a range of renowned institutions, including uh, Chicago and Tel Aviv University. Uh, while developing a masterful body of research about which I'll talk a bit more in a moment, uh, he has somehow managed to serve uh, in a range of uh, extensive, an extensive range, and I would think quite exhausting uh, range, of administrative positions at Berkeley. Uh, these include, among others, associate dean responsible for the program in jurisprudence and social policy, and as chair of the undergraduate legal studies program. It's on David's research that I'd like to now turn for a moment. Um, he has published, again, far too much for me to list, uh, but these include uh, The Province of Legislation Determined, which was recently uh, reissued by Cambridge University Press, a newly completed critical edition of Jean-Louis Delhomme's The Constitution of England, and a great many articles appearing in such prominent journals as the Journal of British Studies, the History of Political Thought, and in an array of superb edited collections. As a body, David's research has focused on excavating the nature and foundations of English political thought in the 18th and early 19th centuries. In the process, he has become one of the world's foremost experts on this incredibly important but also incredibly complex body of material. David's tremendous insight and contribution has stemmed in part from his unique ability to bridge scholarship in the fields of history and law. At a time when historians were debating whether 18th century English political thought was best understood through the frame of civic republicanism or Lockean liberalism, David pointed out that some of the era's most prominent political thinkers were speaking another discourse entirely, that is, a discourse of law or legislative science. The period after the Glorious Revolution, he rightly observed, was a period of parliamentary ascendancy, uh, when the amount of legislation suddenly exploded, thus challenging long-established traditions of judicial supremacy in the development and control of the law, traditions that are encapsulated in the very notion of the common law as a judge-made, or as contemporaries understood it, judge-discovered body of law. How to deal with the new challenges and difficulties posed by the rise of parliament as a great legislative force, David has shown, was one of the great political questions of the era. Studying the writings of men like Blackstone, Keynes, and Bentham, David brought to life a world of 18th century legal reformist thought that has been largely ignored because it was not readily assimilable into the established Republican and liberal modes of discourse, but also not to put too fine a point on it because it's really hard stuff. Uh, to study thinkers like Blackstone, David had to acquaint himself with subjects like feudal tenure and landholding and the procedural formalities of the writ system. And after overcoming this very difficult barrier to entry, he had to grapple with the fact that the legal tradition he studied was one that, until Bentham, studiously sought to demonstrate its own timeless continuity. Indeed, unlike David, a great many historians and legal scholars have proven all too willing to accept at face value Bentham's self-aggrandizing claim that the common law tradition he challenged allowed for no meaningful reformist thought. 
unearthing a legal reformist discourse that extended back well beyond Bentham and that connected directly to Blackstone, uh, the man who rightly or wrongly uh, epitomizes for many the common law legal mind, was thus in itself a tremendous achievement. And having unearthed this discourse of legislative science, David has thereafter tracked its numerous and complex linkages to the more recognized discourses of Republican and republicanism and liberalism in ways that I, of course, cannot do justice to here. Having briefly described uh, David's tremendous contributions to scholarship, his erudition, um, I cannot resist ending, if you permit me, on a somewhat more personal note. Um, while speaking insightfully on topics like Backstone's treatment of the writs of entry, assize, and formidin, you know, standard cocktail party material, um, David has always been uh, one of the most down-to-earth, kind-hearted, and affable people uh, I know. And he's been this way since I first had the great pleasure of meeting him uh, back in 1995 when I was first starting my PhD here at Stanford. Um, so with that, let me uh, turn the podium over to Professor David Lieberman, who will tell us about shaping and breaking the politics of legal history. Thank you. Amalia, thank you so much. Uh, I'm always relieved when uh, the person introduces, introducing me decides to do me more than justice, and I'm very grateful. I'm in equal parts honored and humbled by the invitation to deliver the Bliss Carnican Lecture. Uh, indeed, having made the terrible mistake of going to the Humanity Center website and seeing the list of previous Carnican Lectures, I am more humbled than it's altogether comfortable to admit. Uh, I join a rank of scholars far more distinguished and able than myself. Uh, but in addition to intimidating me, the invitation brings some special personal pleasures that I'd like to begin by sharing. In my lecture today, I shall discuss some distinctive literary materials of the 18th century. And in doing so, I turn, of course, to Bliss Carnican's most important scholarly territory. And like so many other students of the period, I stand in debt to his scholarship, to his example, and in deep envy of his range and well-deserved influence. Equally, as a card-carrying member of the Academy, I am grateful for his leadership and timely defense of academic values and liberal education. But in addition to admiring the public and professional dimensions of uh, Bliss Carnican's career, it's also been my very good fortune to witness some of the less professional elements of his remarkable talents. Through the friendship of my wife, Carol, and Bliss's daughter, Sarah, I have enjoyed the hospitality of Gitta and Bliss at family events and weddings. I've met their other children, Lisa, Sybil, Peter, and Erica, and their families, and gotten to know at least a few of the impressive flock of appropriately gorgeous and brilliant Carnican grandchildren. Like many here, I have seen Bliss perform the standard rituals of the academic life, but I've also observed him in action as the elegant host, the father of the bride, the bemused tuxedoed patriarch towering above small grandchildren. Accordingly, this occasion for me is both a great professional honor and a real personal treat. I frankly relish the opportunity to add another point of connection to Bliss Carnican, and I'm grateful too for the support of John Bender, 
uh, who I have known as director of the humanities and even before being director of the humanities for many years, and again to have the generous support of the Humanities Center. 18th century Britain did not see the production of any single masterpiece history of the law that could rank in scale or accomplishment to such landmark achievements as David Hume's History of England or Edward Gibbon's Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire. And the one historical study that might be compared to these in terms of bulk and range, which I'll be mentioning at the very end of my remarks, that is John Reeves' four-volume History of English Law from the time of the Saxons to the end of the reign of Philip and Mary, has long vanished from scholarly consciousness. Yet at the same time, England's legal history was a well-discovered, well-covered dimension of the kingdom's past, and 18th century readers would have lacked little opportunity to learn about its defining features. As David Hume observed of the statutes of the reign of Henry VIII, nothing can better show the genius of an age than a review of the laws. I shall be considering a group of jurists today who were all members of a professional elite and who sought a larger than professional audience for their many compositions. This means that I will be ignoring, alas, the versions of legal history presented in parliamentary debate or political ephemera in newspapers or in more popular literatures. But my approach has the advantage of confining attention to writers who were self-conscious and programmatic about their uses of history and about history's significance for the law. And in turning to this material, I hope to draw out some larger themes about features of the law which have become controversial in our own era, but were not so controversial then. Law in particular, the Scottish philosopher and judge Lord Keynes maintain, becomes only a rational study when it is traced historically, from its first rudiments among the savages to its highest improvements in civilized society. The challenge, Keynes' fellow countryman John Dalrymple explained, was to unite philosophy and history with jurisprudence and to, to write upon a subject like that of a scholar and gentleman. No student could object, Blackstone explained, in the many sections of the commentaries on the law of England, wherein, as he put it, we search pretty highly into the antiquities of our English jurisprudence, since it proves so impractical to comprehend the many rules of modern law in a scholar-like, scientifical manner without having recourse to the ancient. The distinctive project of the most recent generation of speculative lawyers, John Miller, reported in 1803, was to produce a natural history of legal establishments in, with the growth of, in which the growth of civil society, the cultivation of arts and sciences, and the extension of property in all its different modifications were systematically related to the institutions and laws of any people. These appeals to unite law and history were not all of a piece, and in due course I will be considering some of the differences. But to the extent that these statements expressed a shared conviction, we might well wonder that the conviction needed to be rehearsed at all. Surely the case for the union of law and history was well established, if not even overdetermined. 
Blackstone drew copiously and explicitly from the voluminous historical researches of his immediate predecessors in the study of English law. Edward Cook, William Spellman, John Selden, Matthew Hale. Dalrymple cited the historical jurisprudence of the 16th century French humanists and of their British and other European successors. Keynes clarified his methodological aspirations by invoking the testimony of Bolingbroke, who in turn cited Francis Bacon. Only a few decades following Miller's triumphal discovery of a natural history of legal establishments, Carl von Savigny in Berlin and Henry Maine at Oxford would denounce the jurisprudence of the 18th century and issue the call for an, of course, historical approach to legal materials. As all these figures knew, law was recognizably an historical artifact, whose studies seemed naturally to demand some account of origins and development. There was first the blunt reality of path dependence. Much of the law's basic elements, not least its more technical rules and refinements, seemed best or perhaps only explicable on a historical basis. Far more weighty was the standard celebration of native legal practices as a body of customary law. England's common law, like other legal systems, attained their distinctive excellence and unique correspondence with the temperament of the community they served because of the law's steady incremental adjustments and refinements which shaped it over an extended period of historical growth. Common law in the standard and influential formulation was fraught with the accumulated wisdom of the ages, so that its historical nature and its moral achievement remained tightly bound. And finally, there was politics. Law was simultaneously a vehicle of sovereign power and an institution setting boundaries and norms for its legitimate deployment. In face of the sustained crises of royal government and in the midst of sectarian religious division in the 17th century, antiquarian lawyers in England, as elsewhere in Europe, undertook a massive and tendentious project to recover the historical identity of the kingdom's fundamental laws. This reconstructed historical or ancient constitution would settle questions of political legitimacy by specifying the terms of public authority on which the political community was first created, and so disclose the proper and valid contours of political life. It was in these political charged circumstances that the basic archives of England's legal sources came to be assembled and explored, and the rival interpretations of the English legal past came to be delineated. 18th century political commentators frequently sought to distance their own historical inquiries from this sort of prescriptive antiquarianism, just as they sought to distinguish their own political contests from the sectarian strife of the Stuart era. The Constitution of England has been in for, seen in two very different lights for almost a century before the revolution of 1688, explained Lord Lolingbrook in 1733. But with the glorious revolution settlement of 1688, he reported, this contest has finished. 
our Constitution is no longer a mystery. Unfortunately, this was a strategically delivered obituary in which a presumed consensus was pressed into service to attack political enemies. In fact, appeals to legal precedent and historical legitimacy continued to orientate political debate. Whether the contest concerned Wilkesite radicals challenging the legitimacy of general warrants or North American colonists defending their local assemblies or Anglican opponents to legislative relief of the Irish Catholics or extra-parliamentary agitators in support of parliamentary reform. William Blackstone echoed Bolingbroke in claiming that the authority of 1688 and the success of the Hanoverian succession thankfully lowered the temperature on earlier disputes. Doubts, he reported in the commentaries, had formerly been raised by weak and scrupulous minds concerning whether, in fact, there had ever been in England an actual contract between king and people that governed the terms of allegiance and obligation. But such qualms, he reassured, now must entirely cease, especially with regard to every prince who has reigned since 1688. Nonetheless, in considering the episodic legislation through which Norman and Angevin kings prudently moved to redress the abuses of royal government, Blackstone instructed his readers not to imagine that such enactments were, quote, mere infringements of the king's prerogative extorted from our princes by taking advantage of their weakness. Instead, these comprised a restoration of the ancient constitution. And it was upon this foundation that the liberties of England stood. The continued relevance of such politically potent appeals to the kingdom's legal antiquities ensured that the systematic presentation of English law included discussion of the institutions of governments and political power. Blackstone's commentary celebrated political liberty as the defining glory of the law and offered a particularly reassuring version of liberty's historical pedigree, built selectively out of the materials assembled by the 17th century researchers. The origins of personal liberty and limited kingship could be confidently traced to a common law consolidated in the Saxon era. This law survived the threat and ruptures of the Norman conquests and the subtleties of the Norman jurists, which pushed the kingdom towards tyranny, setting in motion a political dynamic that repeated itself at key points in the kingdom's past. England's liberty's successful resistance could be documented in the series of famous parliamentary enactments, beginning with measures forced upon an unwilling King John, the Charter of Fortis, and Magna Carta, next confirming the legislation under Edward I and his successors, Magna Carta having been renewed no less than 30 times, according to the calculation of Sir Edward Cook, and then, after long interval, the great monuments of the Stuart era, the 1628 Petition of Right, the 1679 Habeas Corpus Act, a second Magna Carta, according to Blackstone, the 1688 Bill of Rights, and the 1701 Act of Settlement, which he reported was built according to the ancient doctrine of the common law. Each of these episodes could be, and indeed had been, lawyered to death 
in the juristic arguments over English history. To take the menacing instance of 1066, the defeat of the Saxon King Harold by William the Conqueror. Was this a conquest of England that overturned Saxon laws and government and replaced it with the absolute monarchy of the Normans? No, because the reigning Harold Saxon King never had been a legitimate heir to the throne, so that this, in fact, was a case of disputed succession merely disguised as a political conquest. No, because this was a case of conquest, but not the political conquest of a kingdom in general, merely the personal conquest of one king over another. Alternatively, again, no, because this was a case of conquest which gave William in principle the full legal authority to govern as a conqueror, but he had chosen not to govern in this way by explicitly pledging to rule according to the established laws of the kingdom. Or alternatively, mm, maybe, because although this was a case of political contest which gave William the full legal authority to govern as a conqueror, and although he had chosen initially to rule according to the established laws of the realm, he later reversed this policy by repopulating the kingdom with Norman supporters, confiscating the estates of the natives, obtaining oaths of submission from the remaining natives, and redistributing the property of the kingdom on the basis of a new system of feudal tenures. Or again, no, because the system of laws and property allegedly introduced to, by William were in fact already present in the laws of the Saxon period, thus in fact confirming the essential legal continuity throughout this period of political dislocation. And so on and so on. 18th century accounts of the law, like the commentaries, typically referenced but did not fully rehearse such debates. Blackstone distanced his own discussion of the former disputes and looked to find scholarly consensus wherever possible. The major burden of his history was to compress and popularize the far more juridically and philologically demanding 17th century scholarship. And in this guise, he often appeared a spectacularly complacent apologist for established political hierarchies. Blackstone's great youthful critic, Jeremy Bentham, described the commentaries as a sink that would swallow any garbage that is thrown into it. <laughs> Referred to the work's author as everything as it should be Blackstone, and reported that we, he would leave discussion of England's matchless political system to Mother Goose and Mother Blackstone. There was, of course, more subtlety and insight than those charges suggest. But for my purposes here, the quality of the discussion is less significant than the impulse behind it. Blackstone's law book was an unprecedented contribution to English legal letters. It began life as a 1753 course of lectures at Oxford University, the first occasion on which English law was taught at an English university, thus disrupting the long-established monopoly enjoyed by Roman and canon law. In 1765-9, the lectures appeared as the four-volume commentaries, 
the first of a steady succession of additions and abridgments and densely, densely annotated recastings that regularly appeared throughout the Anglophone world through to the early 20th century. Blackstone's distinctive strength was in blending the exposition and the history of English law, and in furnishing the law with both a logical order and an easily mastered historical narrative. No reader would have found jarring his decision to conclude the fourth volume with the chapter-length survey of what he called the rise, progress, and gradual improvement of the laws of England, which revised synthetically the various historical themes of the previous volumes. In its coverage of England's constitution, the commentary supplied a juridical history that neatly mapped the conventional and often equally celebratory political histories of the kingdom with their typical emphasis on kings and rivals, ambition and power. Finding politics in, legal in a part of legal history concerned with kings and parliaments scarcely amounts to a scholarly breakthrough. No one need to rush and phone the MacArthur Foundation in my support. But the perhaps political dimensions of this legal area were not confined to the discussion of England's constitution alone. Indeed, the traditional ordering of English jurisprudence did not separate the law of the constitution into a discrete subsection of the larger whole. Roman law, for example, distinguished public law and private law, referring roughly to that part of the law that concerned the Roman state, public, from that part that concerned the individual citizen, private law. English law, in contrast, tended to deploy the same legal categories to describe the structures of political rule and of private station. And on this basis, it was possible to describe all the structure of politics in specific legalist terms. The sovereign legislature, parliament, was a high court. Kingship was a form of a state held by a monarch. The enfranchised parliamentary voter enjoyed a form of property in his franchise. The legal corporation was an artificial person, and so on. As Edmund Burke instructed the wild and misguided revolutionaries of France, by a constitutional policy, we receive, we hold, and we transmit our government and our privileges in the same manner in which we enjoy and transmit our property and our lives. This blending of government and property, which Burke championed as constitutional policy, was more accurately portrayed as historical artifact, one whose elucidation took the 18th century jurist to, a define, to the defining core of the English legal order, the law of tenures, that is real property, which in turn led no less directly to the feudal law. It is impossible to understand with any degree of accuracy, Blackstone explained, either the civil constitution of this kingdom or the laws which regulate its landed property without some general acquaintance with the nature and doctrine of feuds or feudal law. As in the case of the ancient constitution, the history of English feudalism had been fiercely contested in past eras. 
such that later generations had at their disposal a remarkable body of antiquarian learning then assembled to clarify contested questions of origins and development. And here again, we see a process in which the most influential 18th century treatments readily appropriated this learning, but flattened the earlier controversies and popularized and compressed the forbidding erudition upon which they drew. Already by 1702, serious medieval scholars in England complained that the common lawyers were losing their command of feudal learning. Blackstone's commentaries proved the most durable vehicle of such historical popularizations, but in this case, he depended on the work of an earlier jurist, Martin Wright, and his 1729 introduction to the land law of tenures. The project of legal exposition, Wright said himself, was straightforward. To show that England's baffling technical and complex rule governing estates and tenures all developed from a common historical source in the feudal law and could not be understood in the absence of this historical information. The account was throughout dependent on earlier researches and Wright routinely reports on some of the earlier interpretive controversies, not least the potent issue of whether feudal tenures had been unilaterally imposed on England by the Norman princes. But since his aim, as he put it, was not to exhibit a tedious or minute treatise of feuds or to adjudicate on conflicting claims of numerous previous authorities, Wright freed himself from the burden of lengthy treatment or substantive contributions. The organizing principle of the feudal law was the relationship between lord and vassal, in which land was held provisionally on condition of military service. Feudal law was relevant to government since the relationship of authority and allegiance between king and barons and barons and tenants were structured on feudal lines. And the law was no less relevant to the rules regulating landed property because these rules originated in that same relationship. Over time, the structures of feudal authority mutated. The vassal's land acquired the incidence of property stable enjoyment, hereditary succession, alienation, and substitution. Military service was supplemented by alternative incidents of obligation, and a complex taximony of improper and derived feuds, feuds resulted. But the legacy of feudal origins permeated the forms of modern law and readily explained its most prominent features, primogeniture, the exclusion of women and stepbrothers, and the rules of inheritance that states descended to younger heirs but never ascended to fathers, a peculiarity which Edward Cook in the 17th century explained by saying that English law followed the rules of gravity, but which Wright corrected by explaining feudal identity. For Wright, feudal law provided an explanatory logic and revealed an organizing narrative for the development of property in the kingdom, a movement away from exclusively military services. Blackstone characteristically classed the narrative as another exemplary story of English liberty. The oppressive aspects of feudal obligation had been removed, military tenures had been abolished by statute. Both jurists identified and described a pattern of legal development, 
but neither had reason to explore at any length the social processes that drove the development itself. This form of legal history, one which located law and legal change firmly within the larger dynamics of societal transformation, became the hallmark of 18th century Scottish jurisprudence. And it is possible to trace something of the progress of this genre of legal speculation by looking at a series of influential texts that navigated the same right Blackstone territory concerning feudal law and feudal tenures. In the year 1757 to 8, two important legal histories were published in Edinburgh, John Dalrymple's Essay Towards a General History of Feudal Property and Lord Kames's Historical Law Tracts. Both were programmatic undertakings which shared common ambitions and methodologies. Dalrymple, for example, dedicated his book to the elderly Kames. Each author turned to history to promote a better understanding of the historical commonalities that existed between Scottish and English law. And both adopted an unusually broad frame of reference for their jurisprudential inquiries. In this latter respect, the impact of Montesquieu's Olympian 1748 treatise on the spirit of the laws was especially marked. Dalrymple placed a long quotation from Montesquieu on his title page. Montesquieu furnished a model for examining human laws in terms of the larger conditioning environment of physical and social forces in which these institutions operated. And in the closing chapters of his work, Montesquieu brought the resulting massive compendium of comparative law to bear on the contested terrain of France's legal history and French feudal law, thereby supplying a second model for comparative legal history. Dalrymple and Keynes's publications have gained a specific notoriety in modern scholarship as the setting in which appeared for the first time in published print accounts of what is now a famous four-stage theory of societal progress, which tracked the development of human communities from rudeness to refinement in terms of four distinct stages, hunting, pasturage, agriculture, and commerce, each with its distinctive forms of subsistence accompanied by distinctive networks of law, governance, and manners. In this setting, the four-stage theory enabled Dalrymple and Keynes to treat feudal law as a somewhat aberrant legal form. Keynes condemned it as a violent and unnatural system, whereby the system of military provision operating in a warrior community came to be inserted into the property regime of an agrarian society. In proposing a general history of feudal law, Organized into topical subsections, Dalrymple rehearsed several unifying themes. The background political dynamic to the historical alteration in feudal tenures observed by Wright and Blackstone was the result of a conflict between kings and powerful barons, in which barons sought to maintain their social power through armed retainers and large landholdings while kings promoted the interests of smaller landholders and towns as a counterweight to baronial strength. Changes in law designed to facilitate property division and exchange first appeared in urban and mercantile settings before they made an impact on landed property. English and Scottish property rules derived from a common historical origin in the feudal law 
and their separate lines of development represented contrasting institutional responses to shared challenges of freeing up land to possessions for the purposes of exchange and raising credit. In the better known compositions of later Scottish historians and philosophers, these elements were reworked into a long influential account of the revolution in law and government that attended the emergence of commercial society in Europe, essentially the backbone account that you find in the great 19th century social theories such as Marx. Thus, for example, Adam Smith, who first explored this material in lectures on jurisprudence, presented in The Wealth of Nations an explanation for how the introduction of commerce and manufacturers came to destroy the feudal system. The great lords undermined their own social power by directing their surplus wealth away from the maintenance of retainers and tenants and on to the consumption of the costly goods of the tradesmen and artificers. This in turn freed the tenants and retainers from their former positions of dependency helped pacify the countryside, served to strengthen the social power of urban and mercantile orders, and made possible the extension throughout the society of that more ordered and stable administration of justice, which earlier developed in towns and urban centers. Among the cumulative effect of these transformations, as Smith put it in The Wealth of Nations, was the gradual introduction of good order and government and with them the liberty and security of individuals. It seems natural to regard the alternative histories of feudal property offered by Wright and Blackstone, and then by Dalrymple and Keynes, and then by Smith and his successors, as ever more sophisticated and, sociological, and sociologically insightful treatments of legal change. Clearly, there is much to the characterization. Still, we also observe a division of scholarly labor amidst quite contrasting intellectual projects. The special achievement of Wright and Blackstone was the synthetic popularization of arcane legal doctrines and difficult antiquarian scholarship. Yet it was still the law they sought to explicate, and the law of tenures in estates they dealt with, they had to deal with in its full state of fabulous intricacy. Thus, they describe the rules to distinguish legal interests from equitable interests, to distinguish words of purchase from words of conveyance, to differentiate estates in possession from estates in remainder, and states in remainder from states in reversion, rules to, encourage, to discourage uses but to, to facilitate entails, rules to facilitate fees, but to limit fees upon fees, and rules to identify perpetuities, and then to bar them, and then so on. Smith, in contrast, deployed the materials of legal history to delineate the progress of opulence, and was freed from this kind of technical specificity. At the same time, the level of generality at which Smith operated reinforced even more powerfully the shared theme and conviction that property law and its history reference both land and, and chattels as well as political power and civil government. Property and civil government very much depend one upon another. Smith formulated the point in his lectures on jurisprudence. His own history 
of the final demise of feudal authority neatly wove together narrative changes in the objects of property right, from land and retainers to the luxuries of commerce and manufacturers, in the practice of property rights, from feudal dependency to security of property, and in the government structures preserving property rights and justice, from feudal instability to regular government and personal liberty. This opening up of the legal materials to a wider social context also has relevance for the jurist contributions to that distinctive innovation in 18th century historical inquiry, which was most often referred to as the history of manners. Just as the classical histories of kingdoms and statecraft came to be supplemented in works such as Voltaire's and Hume with supplementary discussions of arts and letters, fashions and tastes, so the jurists pushed to consider legal practices in connection with the cultivation of arts and sciences and the refinement of common manners. Here again, the debt to Montesquieu was explicit, and it was this style of jurisprudence that John Miller identified, which I quoted before, as the natural history of legal establishments. Two publications of the 1770s, John Millar's Origin of the Distinction of Ranks and Lord Keynes's Sketches of the History of Man exemplified these methodological impulses. Millar's pioneering study of the history of, history of the structures of social inequality was the more focused project. Keynes' chaotic three-volume magnum opus offered its extensive commentary on the history of manners almost by default. Both drew from legal sources, literary materials, and the increasingly growing archive of exotic ethnography of non-Western communities to chart the myriad practices and norms that accompanied societal progress from savagery to civilization. In principle, at least, one might imagine this kind of historical study as working to displace the primacy usually given to law and politics since so much attention was directed to extra-legal and extra-political dimensions of social experience. Certainly, there were notable cases, such as the perceived transformation of European attitudes to gender under the impact of crusades and chivalric codes, where the relevant legal structures regulating women and the household were, by implication, moved to the periphery. But in general, the jurist contributions to the history of manners sustained the familiar emphasis on the social efficacy of law, property, forms of government. Nothing so enabled the processes of moral advance as the benign effects of personal security and regular government. The form of government, as Hume showed earlier, had direct influence on the cultivation of arts and literature. The softening of manners depended critically on the stability of possession and the escape from poverty and violence. Millar revealing began, revealingly began his study by explaining that the leading purpose for examining the manners and customs of nations was to obtain a comparative perspective on the basis of which laws could be improved and reformed. Thus far, I've been considering two nested and porous layers of legal history. 
one addressed to the structures of governance and political rule, one addressed to the history of property and title. Both histories were expressly shaped by politics in the sense that both involved struggles for power, authority, and advantage in terms of which the law was best explained and understood. Both, I think, remain familiar histories to us now, one conventionally configured as the constitutional history of England, the other as the transition from feudalism to capitalism. In both these narratives, the law undergoing historical change chiefly comprised a system of rules and doctrines, rights and duties, once more to us a familiar picture. But the, at the cost of complicating further an already burdened account, I need to introduce yet one more layer of legal history into this picture. This involves an alternative conception of the law, one centered on the operations and mechanisms through which the legal order vindicated rights and remedied injuries. In modern jurisprudence, this law covering process and procedure frequently appears as a secondary system existing and designed to implement the principal body of substantive rules. But earlier legal approaches reversed this picture, stood it on its head. The standing maxim, no legal right without a remedy, meant that the right existed because of a remedy available to secure it. Law comprised remedies, and these remedies were generative of rights and duties. This conception of law, moreover, was reinforced by the routines of professional practice. English law was a pervasively causalistical system. Professional education remained principally a matter of mastering the intricate techniques for handling legal cases, or what Thomas Littleton in the 15th century described as the science of pleading well. Common lawyers obtained command of the technical forms for the initiation and processing of cases, writs, forms of action, special pleadings, of a legal literature dominated by information about cases and methods of process, processing cases, yearbooks, law reports, formularies of writs, and of a pedagogy focused especially on pleadings and responses to hypothetical legal disputes the moots. Like so much else, this law was an immensely technical and messy historical artifact, so that the basic exposition of the law once more prompted an historical discussion of change and development. In the commentaries, for example, Blackstone presented yet another historical narrative, charting the relative pattern of institutional adaptation. The centerpiece of this legal history was the replacement of the original body of common law writs and forms of action which Blackstone styled the old feudal actions with a set of modern actions, ejectment, assumpsit, trover, trespass on the case, and so on. The stylized legal fictions which enabled this transformation left legal process intricate and forbidding, but at work was the same logic of modernization revealed in the history of tenures and estates. The new legal procedures facilitated exchange and alienation, which was required by the new commercial mode of property that replaced England's military tenures. At many points, the history of legal process intersected the better known history of English liberty, 
Procedural features such as trial by jury and common law writs of habeas corpus were the natural partners of Magna Carta and the Declaration of Rights. In the indictment of Tudor and Stuart abuses, prerogative courts and secret trials loomed as menacingly as treason statutes and fiscal impositions. But these were the headline stories of an area of law most prominent from the vantage point of the practitioner. Perhaps because of this internal professional quality, scant scholarly attention has been directed at the several substantive histories of courts and forms of action that first appeared in the 18th century. This omission is particularly glaring in the case of the single most substantial effort at the history of English law produced in the 18th century, the work I referred to at the outset, John Reeves' four-volume history, which appeared in several editions in the 1780s. The plan of his work, Reeves explained at the start, is wholly new, which was to reconstruct the history of law as the history of professional legal learning. The result was a crushing narrative of legal change operating at the level of writs and pleadings. This was a legal history composed in self-conscious counterpoint to the historical approaches I discussed earlier, and to make the point more concrete and finally to draw together some of the strands I've been weaving thus far, I want briefly to consider the illustrative case of the English Justinian, King Edward I, who reigned from 1272 to 1307. The classic celebration of England's Justinian appeared in Matthew Hale's posthumous history of the common law of England, which appeared in 1732, several decades after Hale's death, which in turn provided the model for Blackstone's expressly derivative panegyric in the commentaries. In their shared estimate, more was accomplished to settle the law during the first 13 years of his reign than in any single other period of English history. And his kingship marked the epoch for the true stating of the law. This unrivaled achievement was conducted through numerous statutes that ranged widely in nature and goal. He renewed Magna Carta in the Charter of Forests, extended common law process to Wales, resolved the major jurisdictional competition between the central royal courts, and reformed the procedure of minor local courts and inferior tribunals. Great alterations were made to estates and tenures, the removal of significant restraints on alienation, and the introduction of estates' tail. The introduction of a new writ, alleged, and related measures made land property chargeable for the recovery of debts, innovations Blackstone explained of signal benefit to a trading people and contrary to all feudal principles. The law reforms of the English Justinian appeared in the treatment of Edward I given by David Hume in his great history of England. Hume judged Edward the ablest, most warlike, and most ambitious of English monarchs, and his narrative devoted most space to the, king, to the king's costly ambitions against the kingdoms of France and Scotland, and his shrewd handling of the constant rivalry between himself and the powerful barons. These political dynamics accounted not only for the most public laws passed in his reign, such as the legislation confirming Magna Carta, but also for the measure altering landed tenures and the legal remedies for creditors. 
Edward's reforms of numerous common law process and administration ranked amongst his greatest gifts to the realm. But his contribution to the improvement of the common law was not to be confused with any desire to restrain royal power. Indeed, these reforms functioned to counterbalance the power of the barons and thus to advance the royal interest. He took care, explained Hume, that his subjects should do justice to each other, but he desired always to have his own hands free. England's Justinian figured once again in Reeves' History of the English Law, which given its scale, provided the rehearsal for the lengthiest discussion of these legal developments, occupying over one third of a single volume. Reeves also noted the king's political competition with the barons and the way in which improvements in the administration of justice advanced the royal interest. But he began by identifying a group of the most published measures, again, the confirmation of Magna Carta and so on, explained their precise impacts on specific legal offices, but hurried to dispatch them from his discussion. He then turned at considerable length to those enactment concerning the common justice of the kingdom. It was this material that was the most important legacy of the English Justinian, and the discussion itself he provided comprised an account of what each measure meant to the practice of legal remedies, to the pleadings and forms of dispute within the jurisdictional reach of specific tribunals. Now, I want to give everyone a flavor of what this kind of history reads like. And my position here is uh, familiar from those uh, not well-financed production of Shakespeare's uh, Roman plays, where there'll be a single spear carrier to the side, and that's meant to suggest these huge armies of warriors uh, just about to appear. I have two extended quotations. Uh, I'm almost at the end, uh, but I want to read them out simply because uh, without them, what this kind of history Reeves proposed for the law is very hard to get. First, I'm going to take up uh, the example of this writ elegit, which received a lot of notoriety because for the first time enabled a creditor to attach land against an unpaid debt, which was seen as so indicative of the shift from military tenures to trade and commerce. What interests Reeves here is the impact of that writ, elegit, to the previously existing writ, writ of error, by which mistakes in past legal decisions could be raised on appeal to another legal tribunal. So here we go. The reason for ordaining a bill of exceptions was this. A writ of error might be had whenever there was an error on the record. But it sometimes happened that the parties might allege matter of exception in court, which the judges would overrule, not recognize the error. And the matter that was so overruled, as it was never entered upon the record, could not be assigned for error. No authoritative legal document recorded that an error had been challenged. It therefore now was provided as follows. That where anyone was pleaded before the justices and proposed any exception, and pray it might be allowed, but the justices would not allow it, then he might write down the exception and pray the justices to put their seals to it, which they should do. And if one refused, another might do it. 
And after this, the king, upon complaint of what the justices had done, caused the record to come before him, and that exception was not found therein, that is not found on the authoritative record of the case, the complainant showed it written down, his own copy of the charge of error, with the seal of justice appendant on it. Then the justice should be commanded to appear at a certain day to acknowledge or deny his seal, and if it was so denied, then they were to proceed and determine whether that exception ought to be refused or not in the earlier case. After this statute, it would seem that most points of law, whether upon the record or not, might be re-examined in a writ of error. This writ about credit had this lasting impact on this other writ, error, which in turn transformed how cases could be appealed. Second quotation. This again is about debt. This was the way in which certain debts could now be handled by a certain court, a stewards or martial courts, and the situation in which a legal process to that end was raised. When the debtor came in to answer, he might allege many things against the creditor by way of exception. That is, evade having to face the claim of a debt. He might ask what he had to show for his debt. And if he had nothing but his own declaration to prove it, the person attached had judgment. If it was just an oral claim, they would dismiss the case. But if a writing was produced and any default was found in name or number, the defendant might say that he was not bound to answer such writing because it was faulty. A mistake had been made in the technical instrument. The defendant might say that he was not bound to the distress of the steward or marshal. And that was proved the plaintiff could recover nothing unless he, the plaintiff, could reply that though he, the defendant, was not bound to the distress of the steward or marshal, that is, was not eligible to appear before this court, this could not avail him, because he did belong to the king's household, over which this court did have jurisdiction. But the defendant might say he ought not to answer because he was not taken within the limits of the household, and therefore not within the jurisdiction of the marshal, but he was brought there by violence. The defendant might say it concerned his freehold, and so might demand judgment whether he had to answer concerning his freehold without a writ. The defendant might say that the plaintiff had complained of the same trespass in another court. He might say that to show an acquittance or another plea was then depending in another court by writ for the same matter. That is, that there were duplicate trials going on. If there was a condition in the obligation, he might say that he was not bound to pay the debt because the condition was not satisfied. That's from the middle of about uh, several pages in this vein. This kind of material spread out over nearly 2,000 pages of legal history requires something of a cultivated taste. Rees composed a remarkably remorselessly internalized legal history of process and pleadings, a history of law as the history of what practitioners did to secure legal results. In setting out his project, Reeves explicitly rejected the common assumption that a history of law would draw upon, quote, the civil history of the times. This move to look to this larger social context was a false guide since the major changes in the law had little to, to do with the debates over law occupying a parliament or the public sphere. Indeed, in constructing a history of English law, 
the researcher needed to keep firmly focused on the sources and material specific to the law institutions of law themselves. As Rees put it, little is to be acquired by traveling out of the record of the statutes, of the yearbooks, of the parliament rolls, of the law tracks. The discipline of social history was once famously, infamously described by a modern English historian as history with the politics left out. Legal history for Reeves was law with the politics left out. Now, it would be convenient for Reeves to have been a closeted practitioner or a reactionary antiquarian whose version of legal history thus could be explained in terms of professional inwardness or a trade union hostility to outside pressures. But Reeves, it turns out, was a highly political metropolitan barrister. In the 1780s and 90s, he was responsible for two separate plans for the reform of London policing, the first of which involved a sweeping and thoroughly abortive proposal for the reorganization of the city's historic structure of corporate government. As a law clerk to the Board of Trade, he helped draft legislation for the creation of courts in Newfoundland and later served as a chief justice in the colonies. In 1795, he successfully weathered prosecution by the House of Commons for seditious libel and on account of the ultra-royalist constitutional doctrines presenting in an anti-radical tract. Reeves, in other words, was, was an experienced hand in the political world he chose to exclude from legal history. For us moderns, the case for a non-political treatment of the law frequently is prompted by a concern to defend the law's claims to impartiality and integrity. A law shaped too much by politics and power is a law no longer able to realize the lofty societal and moral goals we typically place on it. In 18th century England, the claim that the law chiefly served the interests of hereditary elites and property wealth and oppressed the weak and the poor or failed to deliver the system of liberty its advocates championed was a frequent radical political charge. And the countercase for judicial impartiality, open courts, and routine justice was rehearsed no less frequently. As I have tried to show here, the history of law generated reassuring conclusions that legal development had rendered the law better equipped to protect rights and property from arbitrary power and better able to maintain relations of justice where previously lordship and dependency prevailed. But history equally revealed that this welcome result was itself the product of a recognizably political process, shaped throughout by conflicts over power and social interests, which left their discernible markings throughout the entire legal fabric. It is not at all clear that in proposing a legal history with the politics left out, John Reeves sought primarily to insulate the law from the taint of political contamination. But a program of legal history such as his that insisted on looking no further than internal professional sources distanced the life, distanced the life of the community from what Reeves termed the great revolutions in legal learning and explicitly ignored the civil history of the times was scarcely a value neutral enterprise. Predictably, of course, there was a politics 
to, the legal to legal history with the politics left out. But what these politics were and what circumstances prompted their articulation are questions no doubt best left for another occasion. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, David, for a rich and probing lecture. Um, the room here is uh, rather dead in acoustic, so Matthew and I will wield uh, cordless microphones to uh, those of you who put your hands up to ask questions. And uh, if there's someone you particularly want to call on David, we can go that way. But basically, one of us will be on one side of the room and one on another, and we'll uh, try to alternate sides. Yeah. So. You know, I'm not allowed to tell you not to call us. Uh, <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> okay, so who would like to begin? It's uh, time for a few questions. Thank you, David, very much. That was wonderful. Um, could you give me some insights into the record-keeping technologies that were available at that time? I'm not sure I understand. I understand these superhuman legal scholars who right. you've probed, but, but what was the state of the art for record-keeping at the time? There is a very limited specific set of documents that are authoritative. Um, these are manuscript documents uh, uh, um, kept in Westminster Hall where the court meets, and they're called the plea rolls. And they give very little information about how the law worked and certainly how a dispute arose and what the contest of right was. Supplementing that was a huge privately circulated manuscript set of documents which are centered at the inns of court, the places where the practitioners are educated and then kind of uh, conduct their professional affairs. And much of the legal learning exists in this manuscript record held by the inns. From the 16th, especially 17th century onwards, there's a shift to a print culture. So by I wish I could get this right, because it's a kind of striking uh, 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 point, but roughly, uh, I don't know if Paul Seaver can help me here, but some claim that you know a published law library for an English practitioner at the beginning of the reign of the Tudors, so 1485, would include five books, <laughs> but by the end of the reign of Elizabeth was already up to 60, so, so there's this huge explosion. Uh, What's tricky is that those published materials are not authoritative. So it's not until the 19th century, for example, that the report of law cases in England are issued by the government as authoritative documents. Reports of cases previously are private reports that happen to be published, and a lot of the supporting uh, uh, working materials are of the same kind. So one thing that's happening, what I refer to as a popularization, is a kind of getting certain kinds of material out in a way that they had not been out beyond the world of a professional cast. Jessica? My next? Well, I was really struck by the parallels between 
the new legal history that you were describing and uh, natural history right. in the same period. And you know, so the phrase natural history of law had, had gotten started listening to that. But it's really striking that, that uh, so in the same period in natural history, natural science, kind of a Baconian emphasis on particulars and contingencies, on separating natural history from social history, on leaving the politics out. And uh, historians of science have been very much interested precisely in the politics of natural history with the politics left out in that period. So I guess there isn't really a question in this except to say that it seems like the natural history of law was very closely connected with natural history. Um, it, it sounds that way to me. That's right, and it's certainly the case that the same group of Scottish jurists who start using that phrase all see themselves as Baconian. Everybody wants to be Baconian. They're all on that same currency. What I'm not sure about I mean, my sense is that it is rather late in the 18th century that you start getting this split about whether the history of law is going to be something that looks to us like social history or constitutional history, or whether it's going to be what I would think of as this technical internal history. And that seems to me a dominant question in later legal history historiography and generally social sciences of the law ever since. And so what I got curious about it, and this paper in part reflects, is how that issue comes to be aired and articulated at a particular point in time. Amalia? If I could just follow up on that. I, this may be a little unfair, but you, you left us so curious. I mean, I'm wondering if you can uh, try to speculate a bit about what the politics are of leaving uh, the politics out? Is this a reaction? Is there something about the legal profession at the time? Uh, a greater professionalization? Uh, uh, the fear about the universities taking control of the law? I, I don't know. Uh, um, I think the summary answer, I mean, by instinct now, <laughs> this is one of these total evasions. Of course, when I do complete all the important research on this vital topic, uh, I'll have you speak with greater confidence. But I think the, it's, it's an anti-democratic impulse. The anti-democratic has to be inverted, inverted quotation marks because, of course, England was not a democracy. Um, it wasn't a democratic system. But I think what's being seen here is the way in which uh, discussions about the law that are being reported in the press, that are becoming uh, agitated by various reforming groups uh, that are receiving a much more extensive discussion for someone like Reeves is generating a total misunderstanding of how the law works, what its most important elements are, and its attempt to kind of keep the public perception or the public agitation over certain kinds of law and law reform from infesting what he would see as the kind of central stuff of the law's work, how you're going to provide legal remedies, how you're going to do the actual work of law. So I think it's that. The impulse isn't so much depoliticalization as a specific concern with a kind of populism about the law. Well, let's uh, close with a question from our honoree. Uh, first off, many thanks, David. Many, many thanks. Um, I've been thinking back to graduate school days, actually, where I was, where I was exposed to Richard Hooker, uh, Laws of Ecclesiastical Polity and the, the great 
Ciceronian opening sentence, which I might even be able to repeat a few words of, but, but won't try. Uh, but my question is, does uh, ecclesiastical law or history of ecclesiastical law, if there is any such thing, it's a subject I don't really know anything about, uh, go on same or similar or different tracks uh, from the history of the civil law that you're describing? Bliss, I'm totally humiliated. I mean, uh, what it, it is certainly the case that there is a large literature on the history of ecclesiastical law. And ecclesiastical law is contra controversial for all sorts of reasons, but one is the way in which it survives as the relevant set of rules in these Protestant communities like England. And so how do you have a system of ecclesiastical law, uh, which is papal in origin, still operating, and so on? Um, my suspicion, my under, uninformed suspicion, uh, is that uh, it w I would not at all be surprised if it turned out that many of the debates and many of the historiographical and kind of methodological issues which we take to be basic to these discussions of civil law, native law, secular law, simply are re-rehearsals of issues that have come up over the history of ecclesiastical law. Um, and I just lack the talent of erudition, an erudition <laughs> to pursue that further. But it seems to me that the question is spot on, because that is a very large literature. I'm not at all sure how well it's known, but it seems to me most likely that this material is tracking some of the earlier debates over the ecclesiastical law. Well, David, whether we believe that declaration of modesty will be up to us individually, uh, before we close with a round of applause for David thanking him for his marvelous lecture, let me just say that there's a very nice reception awaiting you uh, outside, and I hope that all of you will stay to partake and, and to chat about the lecture and meet David and, uh, uh, and Bliss and get and other family members are here. And so uh, with that, let's thank David very much indeed. The preceding program is copyrighted by Stanford University. Please visit us at stanford.edu.